Welcome to Genesis. We are uh, in the midst of a series right now, uh, walking through uh, Paul's letter uh, to the Roman church. And uh, this morning, uh, in particular, we're kind of in a tough stretch here, a challenging stretch, and that uh, really we're looking at one theme uh, this morning, and it's the theme of God's judgment, uh, specifically God's judgment towards humanity. Uh, so we're going to start chapter 2 today, uh, and really... Most of, uh, all of chapter 2 and a good section of chapter 3 really walks through uh, God's judgment on humanity, and very specifically this morning, we're going to look at God's judgment on uh, the moral, immoral man, and I'll explain that in a bit. But wanted to pray, and uh, we'll jump in. God, you are, uh, you're very good. You are very gracious and kind. God, you are very loving. And uh, God, I give thanks that uh, you know every single person that is sitting here in this place today. Uh, and God, more than just knowing people's name, uh, you know their heart, you know their soul condition. And God, I do pray that uh, this would be a very powerful day for people uh, as we would hear from you, God, that we would have uh, a genuine encounter with you, the living God. Uh, God, I do pray that you would give each of us just wisdom uh, to understand uh, these things that Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 2. Uh, but God, as we pray for wisdom, I also just ask um, that we'd have humility. Uh, God, not to just reject uh, this part of Scripture because it might be tough to hear or tough to understand and, and kind of get our heart and mind around. So uh, God, please give us great wisdom today. Uh, give us uh, the ability to be humble before you. Uh, and God, I do pray for your grace uh, at work for us to be filled with courage to respond to what you are saying and speaking to each of us uh, in this place today. God, it's great to be back. I'm excited to be here, and I just pray you do something awesome for us, uh, but more so for your name. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, God's judgment, this is the theme of today. One theme, that's what we're going to be working on in about 16 different ver- or 16 verses Uh, in uh, chapter 2 of Romans. And very specifically, we're looking at judgment is inescapable, uh, it's impartial, and it's universal. Uh, As you walk through the first 16 verses, that's really what Paul is is highlighting, is the judgment of God is inescapable, it's impartial, and it is universal. Now, speaking of God's judgment, you might, question might come to mind, uh, and I hope it does. The question is, is it right or fair for God to judge humanity? So one quick response would be like, well, yeah, he's God, so he can do whatever he wants. But I really want you to think about this. Is it fair, is it right for God to cast judgment on you, on me, just on people, on humanity? I think a lot of us would say yes and no. A dual answer, and what I mean by that is I think a lot of us, when we're trying to answer that question, is it fair or right for God to judge humanity? We say, yes, of course he should judge humanity for like the big things. Like when it comes to the big sins, rape, murder, just any sins against crimes against humanity, we want God to judge those sins. Because why? Because they're horrific. They're big sins. But no... When it comes to the lesser sins, well, God's judgment on things like selfishness, gossip, worry, envy, like a slap on the wrist. 
those sins, the lesser sins, don't warrant God's judgment on us. They just warrant maybe a, a rebuke, uh, a warning maybe, or just a slap on the wrist. Now, I think why we say yes and why we say no is because we don't see ourselves as the big sinners doing big sins. Therefore, we're protected under the cloud of, well, I'm not a big sinner, therefore I'm not doing big sins, therefore I'm not going to have to face or stand. My sins are not really worthy of God judging. That makes sense? Now, I know we might not verbalize it like this, but I think one of the biggest lies, I'll be clear with this, lies that Christians believe, so if you're a Christian, you've made a decision to follow Jesus, I'm talking to you, one of the biggest lies Christians believe is that there's levels of sin, that there's big sins, and then there are little sins. If we were to, if I were to ask you, how do you describe humanity? How do you describe just people in general? I think we have three categories. The first category is there's bad people, like really messed up, evil, jacked up people, and we attach names like Osama or Hitler or Stalin or Charles Manson, you know, any serial killer uh, type of person, those are the bad, bad people, do horrific things. And then there's good people, and at least two names that come to mind when I think of good people, you got to think of Mother Teresa, right? I mean, she's not even five feet tall. I mean, bless her heart, she's a good person living in, lived in just the slums, caring for no one, the people that no one else would care about. I think of a guy like Billy Graham. When I think of bad people, I've got a list. When I think of good people, I think of the Mother Teresa's, the Billy Graham's of the world. The third category, do you want to know what the third category is? It's a broad middle road in which most of us live. Have you ever found yourself describing, well, it's not like I'm Hitler, I mean, I know I'm not Mother Teresa, but I'm not Hitler. Well, who are you? Well, I'm, I'm in the middle. That's how I understand myself. I'm not bad. I'm not good. I'm there. This is a lie. I, I don't think Scripture teaches that there's levels of humanity, of good and bad, and then just most of the population floats in the middle road. But if you believe that about yourself, that you're not good or bad, but you're just kind of in that middle road, there's going to be two major issues that, in your life. One is you will never have a meaningful, significant, genuine, authentic relationship with another person because you will keep yourself at a distance from others. Why? Because you're fearful if they know you, your stuff, your sin, they'll judge you. And you'll also live, if I get too close to that person who's hovering really on the bad category, that might reflect on me. So I can't get too close to that person. But if I get too close to the Mother Teresa, then I'm going to feel terrible about myself. So I just live life very disconnected from people. I can't get too close and I think more important than just being disconnected from building healthy relationships with people is it will actually keep us 
very far from God. If you believe yourself not to be good or bad, but just in the middle road category, you will only come to God when you have the major blowout. And you are the definer of the major blowout. For some, you know, if you get really wasted drunk one night, well, that in your mind is a really, really big sin. So therefore, when you do that, that's when you go to God. On the other hand, when things in your life are going relatively pretty well, you have no need for God because God clearly would be looking at you and pleased with, oh my goodness, well, look at that. Look at their accomplishments. They're amazing people. So if you really believe and think that there's good, bad, and then you somewhere in the middle, you'll be lacking in relationship and you'll clearly be lacking in a healthy, vibrant, genuine relationship with God. And what I love what Paul does for us in the book of Romans is he challenges us not to walk in the middle road, living life thinking of ourselves in that middle category. He challenges us really to walk what I'll just call a Roman road. And it's a road walking literally through Romans um, that will do a few things, but two I'll highlight is it will present for us really an accurate picture of who we really are. You cannot help but read Romans 1 and Romans 2 right now and be faced with who you, who I really am. D.A. Carson, uh, who is a professor, scholar, was a professor at the seminary I went to, said this, the Bible presents human beings to be horrible contradictions. We have so much potential reflecting something of the goodness of creation and the glory of God. And on the other hand, we are corrupt, abusive, twisted, and above all, self-focused. Humanity as a horrible contradiction. Created in God's image for God, to know God, to love God, to worship God, to love people, but yet so twisted at our core. Romans Road, walking that road, will paint for us an accurate picture of who we really are. And the second thing that it will do is it will paint an accurate picture of where you, as a sinner, me, as a sinner, really stands with a holy, a just, a righteous God. Romans, if you're not familiar with it and you're starting to get familiar with it, you will be really confronted with how bold the Apostle Paul is. He's not afraid to talk about the wrath of God. He's not afraid to talk about the judgment of God. And he's not afraid to talk about hell. He paints an accurate picture of who we are, sinners, horrible contradictions, and he paints an accurate assessment or picture of what our relationship with God, what we ultimately deserve. Now, nowhere on the Romans road or anywhere actually in the Bible is there this idea that there's good people, there's bad people, and that there's this middle road person. Scripture, specifically what we're looking at in Romans, is pretty clear that we are all sinners who deserve the righteous judgment and wrath of God on our lives. That's the reality of life on the Romans road. Now, it doesn't stop in Romans 2, but if I live my life on the middle road, 
I will live a life believing a lie about myself and ultimately believing a lie about God. And I hope if you catch something today, catch that. Don't live your life as a lie because you're afraid to be confronted with the truth of who you really are and who God really is. Because the good news doesn't stop at that we're separated from God. I will not completely understand, love, value, appreciate the good news until I first understand the, the bad news. John Newton, does anyone know who John Newton is? Wrote a, a little ditty called Amazing Grace. If you're familiar with uh, uh, his story, uh, he was a slave trader. I think we would consider him to be in the really bad category, right? That's, that's not a good thing, trading human lives. That's bad. That's evil. But he had a radical conversion, and out of his conversion came the song Amazing Grace. Now, at the end of uh, his life, these are, this is what he said on his deathbed. My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Jesus Christ is a great Savior. I'm a great sinner, but Jesus Christ is a great Savior. Man, wouldn't that be awesome on your deathbed to that's what you're saying. Now, it would be easy for us, I think, to just look at that and be like, well, of course he's referring to the really, he was a great sinner and that he did all of these horrific, sinful things, crimes against humanity. I don't think that's what he was thinking about. He wasn't thinking of the list of things and the list of sins that he had done. He was looking at himself. I am a great sinner. Go back to something to Dr. Carson said. He said this, the heart of evil is not Auschwitz. If you're not familiar with Auschwitz, uh, go back about 60 years. These were the crimes against about 3 million Jews, tortured and murdered by Hitler. The heart of evil is not Auschwitz, as unimaginably evil as it is. The heart of evil is, first of all, human beings, you and me, wanting to go our own way and discovering the God who has made us. To go our own way and disowning, sorry, the God who has made us. It's easy for us to look at the slave trader and be like, well, look at all of those things he did, or look at these crimes against humanity. But the great evil is you, is me. It's not just what we do, it's who we are. I know that's hard for, I think, all of us to hear. But you can choose to live a lie and believe lies about yourself, remain separated from God and certainly distant from people, or you can start to really say, God, I want to know who I am so that I can know you rightly and relate with you rightly. This is uh, the list uh, Jeremy did a great job last week uh, preaching uh, the end of Romans chapter 1. If you were not here, uh, please take some time to, uh, to listen to that message uh, via podcast. Um, but this is in the end of Romans chapter 1. Start at verse 29. They've become filled 
Imagine this is you, you're listening to this, which you are about to, but imagine you're hearing this for the first time, okay? They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They even invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. So my question to you, as you listen to that list, is that, are you thinking, well, that's not me? I'm not on that list. That's everyone else around me. Clearly, that's not, Paul is not referring to me. He's referring to the just really bad people, the pagan, heathen God-haters. That's not me. I'm not Mother Teresa. But clearly, that list is not talking about me. Well, I think Paul, by the time he wrote Romans, was about 25 years into his ministry uh, of the gospel as, as a pastor to all of these churches. And I think Paul, one of the things he learned, he was a pretty good judge of people, of people. And he knew, as he wrote that list, that there would be people who would begin to think, well, he's not talking to me. And now Paul wants to turn his attention from this just list of sins to the very people who are sitting in their chairs thinking, that's not me. And because it's not me, I'm not going to stand in the way of God's judgment. So Romans chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. You, okay? Who's the you? It's you. It's me. It's not just all Romans chapter 1 is a lot of they, a lot of them, but now Paul turns to set from third person to now second person. So the finger can't go from like them and they. It's now turning and be like, no, 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 you, okay? So Romans chapter 2, you, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself. Talk about that in a second. You who are condemning uh, yourself because you pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of God's, of his kindness, tolerance, or tolerance is forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you to repentance? Now, notice the you in this passage, it's people are now, I think he's talking to us. I think Paul is clearly, I think this is what the audience in Rome would be thinking to themselves, wow, I can't keep looking out, he's talking to me now. And the first thing that he calls out the you for doing is what? Judging. And I just want to ask a question of, why do we tend to be so critical of, bless you, of everyone except ourselves. Why are we that we are so often very harsh towards others in judgment, but we're so lenient 
towards and gracious towards ourselves. Why do we have a, a high standard of everyone else, but our standard for ourselves is much lower? The you that Paul is talking to is you judge. You're looking out at everyone else, but you fail to see that you're doing the same thing. Why do we judge? Why are we so critical? Higher standards for everyone, lower standard for yourself. And I think the very simple answer is self-righteousness. In order for us to feel good, right, or righteous about ourselves, we need to have someone else to compare ourselves to. I can't feel good about myself unless I look down. Driving a car, okay? When someone is going slower than you, what are you saying? You're saying to yourself, you're an idiot, you don't know how to drive. But yet when someone goes faster than you, what do you say? Well, you're a menace, someone should pull him over and get him off the road. So what's the problem? You're comparing everyone to how you drive. I've never served time in prison, but I saw Shawshank, and so... <laughs> but it's interesting to me that someone who is in prison for murder or for rape, you know who the low man on the totem pole in prisons are? Child molesters. So someone who's in there for brutal murders, for brutal rapes, will look down at the child molester, the pedophile, and cast judgment on him. And you're like, what? Do you know what you did? Well, see, I know what I did, but it's not as bad as what he did. The you that, Roman, that Paul is talking about in these first few verses, the you is excellent at casting judgment on everyone else while completely failing to realize that what we're judging others of, we're doing the very same thing. I think a great biblical example of this is King David. King David sees a woman bathing from his home. He calls for the woman, sleeps with her. She's married, another man's wife. Adultery is clearly wrong. Sleeps with her, gets her pregnant, wants to cover the whole thing up, so he brings her husband in who's out fighting the battle where he should have been and ultimately has the husband killed and then tries to cover it up. This is King David. In the midst of trying to hide this up, God sends him his friend who's a prophet named Nathan. And Nathan tells David, who's feeling very self-righteous about himself, David, I've got to tell you a story. There's a poor man. He's got absolutely nothing. He's got one little baby, cute as a button lamb, okay? But his next door neighbor is rich as all get out, has everything, has thousands of lambs. Someone came to the neighbor's house and said, I need food. And the neighbor did not want to give of what he had. And so he went to his neighbor's house stole the one little lamb and gave it and killed it, or killed it, put it on the, on the grill and gave it as food to his neighbor. David hears this story. Keep in mind, 
David slept with another man's wife, got her pregnant, killed the husband, tried to cover the whole thing up. We're talking about a lamb, and then we're talking about David. David's response to this story in 2 Samuel 12.5. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Really, David? You... You really think he deserves to die, but yet you can keep going on and living as if you've done nothing wrong. Outside of just being masters of sin, humanity has mastered the art of justifying our sinful actions because we've mastered being able to judge other people. Paul's warning to us, we do not face the judgment of God because we judge others. I want to be clear on that. We face the judgment of God because we're doing the very same things that we are condemning in other people. That's why we face the judgment of God. And the second I look out and I judge or I condemn someone else's actions, I'm casting down, Paul makes ultra clear, when you do that and you're doing the exact same things, you're calling down condemnation or you're condemning yourselves. This is what Jesus taught in Matthew 7. How is it you can see a speck of sawdust in someone else's eye, but you're blind so you got a huge log in your own eye? Like, how is that possible that I can look out at you and I can see the small little speck of sawdust, but I've got like these logs in my own eye? Paul is very clear when we judge others, we're ultimately bringing down judgment or condemnation on myself. Paul says, though, that when God judges us, that God's judgment on you, on me, is based in truth. What does it mean that God's judgment of you, of me, is truthful or is based on truth? And it just simply means that no one would ever be able to stand before God and say, that's just not fair, God. You don't really know what happened. You don't know the circumstances. You don't know why ultimately I did that. God is omniscient and knows everything. Some of you might remember the trial in, uh, in the early 90s of uh, a certain uh, individual who was former football player accused of killing two people, a breakfast drink. It took nine months, nine months of this trial. Over 150 witnesses were called. And at the end of it, the judge came back with the jury and said, no, he's, he's free to go. As soon as that jury, or that verdict came back, How many hands went up across the world and said, that is not fair? It's unfathomable to me that you can do something for nine months, all of these witnesses again and again and again, and still get to the end and say, that's not fair. That's not what God's judgment will look like. It won't take nine months because God is omniscient, knows all things, and will judge us in absolute truth. Now, one argument would obviously be, but God's gracious. God can't 
be judging of me because he's God. He's forgiving. He's merciful. He's kind. He's compassionate. God will not judge me because it goes against his character to be forgiving. If there was someone on trial for killing nine people, and the judge looked at him and said, you know what, you've done it, but you're free to go. Would justice have been served? I think most of us would say, well, heck no, he's off. There was no punishment for his crime. God is absolutely just in that he will judge our sins. Not just the others, not just them, not just who we think to be like the really, really big sins, but our sins. Now, Paul says that the kindness of God, the forbearance of God, the patience of God, just the grace of God should have an impact on your life. Because God is kind, forbearing, patient, just gracious, that should have an impact on your life. And I think one of two options for you. It's either going to lead you towards repentance. Meaning when you understand how kind God is, how forgiving, forbearing, patient, gracious God is, the immediate result in your life will be one of, I repent. And I can best define, I love how Martin Luther defined repentance. He said, to do so no more is the truest repentance. The sins I did yesterday are not the sins I'm continuing today. I was walking in this direction of self-centered living, of sinful living, but because of the kindness and forbearance and patience of God in my life, I'm now walking this way. That would be one appropriate response to the kindness of God in our lives. Now, I think for me, one of the big things that God's been uh, convicting me of is I need to repent of how I repent. I need to repent of how I view, understand, and practice repentance in my life. My repentance seems to be a lot more self-centered, self-focused, rather than God-centered or God-focused. Self-centered repentance means the only reason I won't do that sin again is because I'm tired of how it makes me feel. I won't do that again because I'm just tired of feeling so guilty and just the shame. I see this a lot with pornography. Men who are just trapped in pornography, they hate the way that it makes them feel. And so their mindset is, I'm going to stop looking at this junk because I'm just so tired of how it makes me feel. So ashamed, so just guilty, so empty. If that's your view of repentance, you need to repent of how you repent. Tim Keller said this about this self-focused repentance. That is not repentance, but rather self-pity. You will only avoid the sin in the future if it hurts you. The sin itself has not become ugly to you, and it has not lost its attractive power over you. Self-repentance, self-centered, self-focused repentance really wants the forgiveness of God, but doesn't want God. I just want God to say you're forgiven, and then I can just go and keep doing my own thing. 
If you want a, a great, I won't read this now, but if you want a great picture of God-centered repentance, please read Psalm 51. It's when finally David was finally broken over what he had done. And he penned these amazing words in Psalm 51. And you hear at the heart of David's cry, the heart of David's psalm, his prayer is, God, please draw near to me again. God, I'm so separated from you right now. God, I want to be with you. His repentance was not, oh, I feel terrible. I'm tired of feeling tired like this. His repentance was a very God-centered repentance. So a question for you to really wrestle with is, as you consider the kindness of God in your life, is it leading you towards repentance? Not self-centered, self-focused repentance, but God-centered repentance. If it's not leading you towards repentance, I think what Paul is about to speak into, if it doesn't lead you to repent, it's going to lead you to have a license to sin. And what I mean by that is if you don't see sin in light of God's kindness and grace and you repent of that, your mentality, your thinking will become a very casual attitude towards sin, meaning I have a license to sin. Like the mentality is, and I'm sure no one's ever said this, thought this, or done this, well, God's going to forgive me tomorrow, right? So I might as well participate, I might as well join, I might as well do, I might as well do whatever, because tomorrow morning I can just wake up and be like, God, I'm really sorry. And the thinking is, it's God's job to forgive, it's my job to give God something to forgive. So I want to keep God busy and just give him things to forgive. If the kindness of God does not lead me to repent from a self-centered repentance to a God-centered repentance, it will lead me to the thinking that I can sin because sin's not that big of a deal and God ultimately is going to forgive sin. And I will be clear, God does forgive sin, but I will also be very clear, you will be held, I will be held accountable for every sin, all of them. Okay, this is where it's going to get hard talking about the judgment of God. All of our sins, not just a few of them, not just the big ones, all of our sins we will have to give an accounting for. Okay, I said God's judgment's inescapable. Now we're going to see God's judgment as impartial or not impartial. Romans chapter 2, verse 5, a few verses says this, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person, please listen, verse 6, God will give to each person according to what he's done. To those who by persistence and doing good seek glory, honor, uh, immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Great verse here in verse 11. For God does not show favoritism. Paul makes 
pretty clear in this section of Romans chapter 2 that those who remain unrepentant towards sin, you are storing up for yourself the wrath of God. This idea of storing up wrath, it's really, it's a great picture of a banking term. I think at some point in our lives, we've all made a deposit in a bank account. We've all gone, put a deposit in, and it's held there for safekeeping. What Paul says is, every time we sin, that is a deposit in God's heavenly, divine, holy, righteous, just bank account. Okay, not just one sin, all sin. I want to be hopefully crystal clear on this. Every time I sin, it goes into, I'm storing up for myself in God's bank account, God's wrath. I think one of the hard things for us to understand, especially if you're a Christian, is I will not face the judgment seat of God. You're wrong. You will. If you are a Christian, if you are a non-Christian, if you're human, you will stand before God in judgment. Scripture teaches that all throughout Romans, through the New Testament, Jesus talks about it. All of us will stand before God and have to give an account for our works, for our deeds, for our actions, for our choices, decisions. All of us. If you've lived under this thought of, well, I'm a Christian, I'm covered, this, the judgment seat's for someone else, you're wrong. The difference is, if I am a Christian, I don't stand alone at the judgment seat. If I am not a Christian, I stand alone. Regardless, though, you and I will stand at the judgment seat of God. Verse 6, he says, uh, God, and this is at least helpful to my thinking, and we get this in our way of thinking about things. If someone committed nine murders, is he tried for murder or is he tried for nine counts of murder? Like no one would say, well, let's just try him as a murderer. No, we try him on every single count of the crimes that he's committed. The judgment seat of God is not, well, he's, well we're trying him or her as a sinner. No, no, no. Every count of our sin. This is why I hope you really catch this is, wow, moving forward, every sin gets stored up. You will either repent of sin and start living life very differently, or you will continue storing up in that bank account God's wrath. Now, Paul makes, again, clear, God will give to each person according to what he's done. And this is where, if you were listening in Romans chapter 2, 6, and 7, Wait a minute, is Paul teaching this idea that we can do enough works and earn or merit salvation? They'll kind of distort, oh, you mean I just have to be good enough or work enough, do enough good deeds. Good deeds outweigh the bad deeds. That is absolutely not what Paul is teaching. He's not teaching salvation by works. He's talking about the standard in which God's judgment will be based upon is works. Meaning God will look at our lives and we'll have to give an account, our works, our deeds, however you want to think about it. I'm not saved by works, but I'm judged by works. Does that make sense? Not saved by my works, that's not what Paul's talking about, but the standard in which God uses 
will be my works, my deeds. Apostle Paul is not making a statement about some criterion of works we have to do to merit, earn salvation. He's talking about the criterion in which God uses in his judgment. He looks at our deeds, our works. I wrote it down like this, and I, I put it up on the screen for you. wanted to be clear. Paul is not trying to show men how to be saved. He is seeking to show men how lost we are and lead us to the conclusion that my works are insufficient in the face of God's righteous judgment. He's not trying to teach us how we get saved. He's trying to show us just how lost we are. Thus, I'm jumping a little bit ahead of myself, when I think about works, that's why, as a Christian, I cling to the finished, perfected work of Jesus. We sing a song, Jesus paid it all. All of what Jesus did, his work, was sufficient for me, sufficient for you, sufficient for those who receive by faith. Paul painted a picture of, there's really two people. There's a life that's bent towards God, and there's a life that's bent towards self. Simply put, you're either living a Godward life, or you're living a very self-word, self-focused lifestyle. I just asked a simple question of which one are you? He gave a great example of the people who pursue glory and honor, pursuing the things of God, eternal things. In store for those people, peace. But to the other person who's not God-word, but self-word, focused on you, on the throne of your life, did you catch wrath, anger, trouble, and distress? Before I finish with the, the last section here, I really do want you to examine which way are you going? Godward or selfward? There's only two options. Paul finishes, uh, well, here in verse 11, I think there's a pretty important question. If God is judging me for not one of my sins, but all of my sins, Will God play favorites? Will like God look at my life and be like, well, Davis did this, this, and this, but this person did this, this, and this. Like that's how we work. We play favorites. But Paul makes pretty clear that God does not show favorites. Can you imagine if that's how God did it? Can you imagine what life on earth would look like? It would be a bunch of people always trying to one-up each other, trying to outperform one another in hopes that God would be so pleased with how they were living that he would pick them. Have you ever been at the wrong end of not being the favorite? I mean, it's ridiculous, but how many middle school stories do you have of you got picked last? Why? Because you're too scrawny. You didn't have the right clothes on. You didn't look or play, you know, a certain way, and so you got picked last. Can you imagine if that's how God did it? Hell on earth. But then when I think about it, I'm like, wait, why does that happen? Why do we live acting like God plays favorites? Like I can perform for God and he'll be like, oh, he read his Bible today. That's amazing. He prayed. He gave money. He went to church. 
I just want to be very clear. We might do that. We might be impressed by one another's deeds. But God, in his righteous, just judgment on us, does not play favorites. This is a hard question, but do you think, and be honest with yourself, do you really believe that there is something about you that might persuade God to make an exception? I know most of us would be at least humble enough to say no, but sometimes our no doesn't match up with how we live and relate to God, though. Do you believe that there's just something about you where you might persuade God to somehow make an exception? I just want to be clear, there's nothing you could ever do. And that, to me, is a very freeing thing because it sets me free from living in competition with you. When I understand that it's all grace, I don't have to worry about competing with you to be God's favorite, to be the teacher's pet. I don't worry, have to worry about coming to church looking a certain way so people will think I got my stuff together. I can just come as I am because I'm not trying to impress you and I know I can't impress God, so I'll just be who I am. And hopefully the grace and kindness of God at work in my life is leading me toward a Godward life, not a self-word life. Paul finishes in, in these uh, last few verses, all who sin, starting at verse 12, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight. Did you catch that? It's not those who hear, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, verse 14, when the Gentiles who do not have the law, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves. I'll explain that. Even though they do not, excuse me, have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. The obvious question I think I, you might be asking, and I think the people listening to this would be asking is, how is it fair for God to judge someone who didn't know that they were being judged? Or how is it fair for God to judge people on some moral code or conduct or law that they were completely unaware of? That's not fair. You can't judge someone if they didn't know there was a standard that they had lived up to. And this is what Paul, in these few verses, I'll try to sum it up very, hopefully just very simply, is we will be judged by a righteous God, not because of our knowledge of the law or our lack of knowledge of the law, but because we're sinners. So whether you know the law or don't know the law, regardless, we're being judged by God who's holy and righteous because we are sinful. Now, the question is, is it even possible to obey all of the law? I'll just give you the first one, okay? The first one that Jesus says, in the Old Testament, there's 613 laws, okay? Um, now, which is pretty interesting because it's really not that many. If you consider, when I went through the process to get this building coded, there was more than 613 regulations. It was ridiculous. Um, so 613 laws. The first, the greatest commandment, first law, do you know what it is? 
Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, is there anyone in here who could raise their hand and say, as long as I've had breath in my lungs and I've been alive, I have loved God with all of my heart, with all of my mind, all of my soul, all of my strength, all of the time. No, we messed the first one. Number two, love people. Have you loved people every day, all the time, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done? Okay, I'm already down. I'm 0 for 2. I think the point is simple, is that there is none of us who could ever be fully obedient to all of the law. That is why we need Jesus. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is the righteousness that has been revealed from heaven for me because I could not be obedient to all of the law. Right? The argument's going to be, well, I didn't know there was a law. God will look at that person and said, have you ever heard of something called a conscience? Oh, I have. Well, that's put in you by me. Oh, you mean I have a God-given conscience that's in me innately? Do you really need a book, a law, a Bible, a code to tell you that it's wrong to put a gun to someone's head and shoot them? No, you don't. Do you need a book, a Bible, a law, a code to tell you that it is wrong to steal from someone? No, you don't. Now, some people obviously do those things. What are they doing? They're ignoring their God-given conscience, right? There is not any one of us who could stand before God and say, I didn't know, because God will say, because you were created in my image, you had a conscience put in your DNA that you would know the difference between right and wrong. None of us will have an excuse before God. But we all fail to live up to our own conscience. Thus, God's judgment is upon us. I'm going to stop here. There's a lot more I could say about these last few verses but I just wanted us to simply know, as you read the, the back few verses in Romans 12, uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 12 through 16, Paul's making a pretty simple point, is none of us will ever have an excuse before God of not knowing the law or knowing the law. The point is, are we righteous before God? And all of us, all of us are not righteous before God. As we just finish I wanted to leave you just with this picture. And the picture is really more of a decision you need to make. And I can't be more clear than this. If you just picture that one day, and this is not a hypothetical, this will happen. This is a Bible promise, a Bible guarantee, a Bible truth. You will stand before God. All of your sins will be made known. Not just you as a sinner, but all of your sins will be laid bare before you, before God. The question is, will you 
self-justify to God before God? Or will you receive the justification that comes from God for you through Jesus? All of us will stand before God. I promise you that. That to me, that leads me to tremble. The thought that I will stand before a living, holy, righteous God and have to give an account for my life because I know my life and I've done some horrific things. The thought of having all of that laid bare before me, before God. I will either stand before God and try to self-rationalize, self-justify, or present my own righteousness to God. If I do that, the wrath of God remains on me and his judgment on me because I am not righteous, is eternal separation from him in hell, in eternal hell. But, and this is a huge, big but, there are those, if you receive a righteousness that's been revealed through Jesus, and you receive that righteousness, my sin will still be laid bare before God. But because I've received from God what Jesus has done for me, everything that Jesus has done covers me. The wrath of God and the judgment of God will be, I don't even, I can't even think of a word. Humbling at best. But I don't stand alone if I stand with Jesus. One last quote from Dr. Carson, he said this, Instead of self-justification, he finds a way to justify us. He finds a way to grant us justification that is not self-justification, but justification from the God who is our maker and our judge. I know this was a pretty heavy message today, but I'm glad we're going through it. I'm glad that all of us now in this room know that we will stand before God and have to give an account. And I'm also thankful and glad that we now all know that we have a choice. I will self-justify before God or I will receive from God the justification. One leads to eternal life in heaven with God as a son, a daughter, a child of God. One leads to to eternal torment separated from God in hell forever. I can't make it any more clear than that. Which have you chosen? And if you have chosen self-justification, change course now. Make the decision to receive the righteousness of heaven, Jesus, so that on on that day where you will stand before God, you don't stand alone. And if you've made that decision to receive Jesus, then it should be your life will look different because the kindness of God has been received by you and is now being shown in repentance. Father God, I just give thanks that uh, Paul is very honest, very bold in presenting to us who we really are and who you really are. God, I just uh, feel the weight of uh, Paul's words here in Romans chapter 2. These verses that we've looked at, God, I just feel the heaviness of it. And God, I can only imagine that there are many, if not all of us, feeling that same weight, that same heaviness. 
that we will stand before you and have to give an account, a reckoning. God, if there is any man or woman that's here right now that has yet to receive a righteousness from you for them, God, I pray that their heart would be so soft right now, not hard or prideful. God, that their heart would be so soft to receive a righteousness from you, God, that when we will stand, God, they will not stand alone. They will stand with Jesus. And God, for those of us who've made that decision, God, I pray that we would not live life very lightly. We would live in light that we will stand before you, God. And we will no longer choose just to go our own way and just do sin, thinking you'll forgive us in the morning. God, that we would take your grace and kindness, patience, forbearance towards us, and we'd repent. 